Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, open it up to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. We want to join in with all of creation now. All of creation right now is actually being held up by the word of God's, God's word, the word of his power, it says in the book of Hebrews. We likewise are being upheld by that same word, and we want to be in connection with it and in line with worshiping this God who upholds us now. So the time of worship hasn't stopped. It has continued on in his word, and we're in Proverbs chapter 2 this morning. And would you pray with me as we open up God's word? Father, we want to pray that you would give us the, the grace to show how much we need your grace. And that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we're asking that in the name of Jesus. Amen. We ended Proverbs chapter 1 with wisdom calling out in the market, calling out in the street corners, uh, inviting anybody who would come, who would understand their need to come in. We saw that there is a a need for response. In in chapter 1 verse 32, there's this one who's complacent. Says the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. So the the appeal was to, to turning into wisdom, to respond to wisdom, and, and to dwell secure. It's the response and the responsive that wisdom works with those who turn, those who listen, those who will hear wisdom when she calls. And part of the response that wisdom is calling for is given to us in chapter two. So she calls out in the market in the street corners, and now having warned rebellious scorners, she instructs her children with how this response should look. And so wisdom comes back to us in chapter 2 as a father, encouraging the opposite of complacency and going to destruction in order that we might grow in our wisdom. And so Proverbs chapter 2 instructs us and instructs all hearers to pursue wisdom and to know its benefits so that you could say, as wisdom has called out in the markets and on the streets, well, I've responded, I've turned, I've heard, now what do I do? Where do I go from here? How do we grow in wisdom? How do we move forward in wisdom? How do we grow in the Christian life? And what can we expect practically from growing in wisdom? And Proverbs chapter 2 helps give us the answer to some of these things. So the, the chapter begins with a bunch of conditional statements, if statements. And you, they, you can see that as they go through the chapter, they're making an appeal to a son, to listeners, to those who will hear, to pursue wisdom. In verse 1, the father wisdom speaks, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Notice all the if statements. They're making an appeal. And here's what they're making an appeal for, that you pursue wisdom. So they say, receive it, treasure it, be attentive to it, incline your heart to it, call out to it, raise your voice, seek for it, search it out. This is rejecting the complacency of fools that leads to destruction that we saw at the end of chapter 1. It's a much different path. It's not the path of folly. It's a path of wisdom to seek these things out. You see, folly doesn't need to be pursued. That's the default of all of our hearts, and we don't need to pursue it. But no one is going to drift into wisdom. It's not going to happen. You can't just be complacent and expect to arrive one day as a wise person and have wisdom in your life and walk in the fear of the Lord. No one drifts into it. 
And so it takes pursuit of wisdom in response to the offer and the appeal that she's making. It takes pursuit of that that actually gains some ground in wisdom. The pursuit of wisdom here is to be a diligent search, like one that's searching for precious metals. Seek for it as you seek silver. Have you ever wondered why there are huge mines miles underground? Uh, It's in the news often that another mine has collapsed and people are trapped underground. And you got to wonder, like, why? What would cause somebody to want to do that? Dig a hole in the ground, send people in there where there's narrow escapes uh, that you could get out of that at any point could collapse upon you. Why would anybody want to do that? Dark, dangerous, expensive places to reach. Well, they do it because there's something of great value there. And it's worth putting a lot of effort into. It's worth even some risk in their lives to get it out. And it takes diligence and it takes perseverance and it takes effort. And that's what the pursuit of wisdom is to be like. Because drifting isn't going to get you there. You don't get to the great precious value of wisdom by drifting into it. It takes work. It doesn't take just being in the right spot. You have to pursue it actively. But notice the pursuit's nature, right? There's some external things that are happening here, but most of what is spoken of here in these first four verses is the internal things that are going on, the internal attitude, the internal desires in this pursuit. You see, there's much more to it than just being in the right spot, the right place, at the right time, or even having externally said, well, I want to pursue wisdom. There's a lot more to it than just that. There's some internal workings to this. There's a different mindset To not just to hear something externally, but to receive it. To actually have this new will that you would want it. To have these new desires that you might treasure it. There's this new attitude that delights in understanding now. And so all these are internal things. And I think this is where we need to stop in our pursuit and in thinking of our pursuit and just check our hearts. And maybe externally we're pursuing wisdom. I'm assuming that for many of you here this morning. That externally you would say, I want to have wisdom. I'll turn in when she calls out. But are your hearts in it? Do you really want it? Do you desire it? Do you want to grow in wisdom? Do you desire to not just passively respond, but to actively pursue wisdom? There's a vast difference between the two. I think another way to ask that is to say, do you want to walk closer with God? Desire a better relationship with him. You want to know him more. Because that's the pursuit's goal. The pursuit of wisdom is is end is that, is to know God, is to have a closer walk with God. You look in verse 5 and it says there's the the conditions where if, 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 and here's the, the end of it, then, if you do these things, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you'll find the knowledge of God. And so what's the goal? The goal is understanding the fear of the Lord. The the goal is to to know how to walk with God in in, in reverence and awe. How to submit to Him with your entire life, not with just part of you. That's the goal. The the goal, he says, is, is the knowledge of God. That's not knowledge about God. It's knowledge of God. And there's a huge difference between the two. The goal is knowledge of God. So it's much more than just an academic pursuit. It's much more than just a pursuit for information. You want to know a person. You want to know how to live in reverence and awe to this person. And one theologian said that a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. 
The goal is awe. It's fear of the Lord. Being in awe of Him and and revering Him. The goal is intimacy. Knowledge of God, not about God. That's true religion. Awe and intimacy. Love, closeness, and obedience to God. That's the goal. That's true religion. And this is a spiritual and personal pursuit. It's not a, a mental one, an academic one. It's after God. It's so that we can walk rightly with Him, so we can obey Him, love Him, honor Him, do all things that He might receive glory in us. And so, do we hunger and thirst for that? Do we, do we put effort and diligence into pursuing God? Do we want relationship with Him? Because that's the pursuit that's being encouraged here in chapter 2. It's a pursuit after God. It's a pursuit that takes effort and diligence and perseverance. It's like going after a great treasure, it takes a lot of effort and digging, but in the end, it's worth it. I'm reminded of, of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus talks about this treasure, giving up everything just to buy this place so that you might have this treasure. Or even he says two stories in a row, a, a pearl that's of such great value that it's worth selling everything for. And one of my favorite phrases in this passage is that he does, he does this in his joy. So in other words, when we, when we say verse 5, that then if you pursue these things, you're going to understand the fear of the Lord and you're going to find the knowledge of God, that there ought to be some joy in that, that that's actually the good life. And that in your joy, you're willing to give everything else up just to gain that thing because that really is the good life that's set before us. This is the life we're made for. It's worth dropping all else for in joy because you desire that thing so much. It's better than all else. And if here, if we desire to grow and to know God, then, then how do we do it? What is the pursuit to look like? Well, in Proverbs chapter 2, the, the pursuit is guided. You're not just on your own, like, find your own way to the Lord. It's very guided. There are means for this pursuit given. And the means of the pursuit are attached to God's word. You look in verse 1. It says, receive my what? Words. Treasure my commandments. And you see this kind of attachment in your pursuit to God's word, to him revealing himself. And one commentator said that it's the starting point. Its its starting point is revelation. It's specific words. It's practical commandments. We see again in verse 6, I think this affirms this. It says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. It's coming from the Lord. He is the source of it. And so the pursuit has to begin with where God has revealed himself, with the revelation of God, because the goal is to understand the fear of the Lord and to know God. So where do we know God? How can we know who he is and what he's like and what he's done? Where does God make himself known? Well, there are specific words and commandments that he has given to us that we might know these things. If you look in Psalm chapter 19, it says where these words and commandments are. The psalmist says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So there a clear reference to the law, and that's what makes us wise. Verse 8 says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You want enlightenment, you want wisdom, you want to pursue those things, you're going to have to go along this track of God's word. That's the channel that we need to be in in order to know God. 
The way to know God is through his word. And it's much more than just information. And it's not like every other book in the world. It's completely different because it's living, it's active, and it gives us God. It reveals God to us. And so when you open this book, you're not, hopefully your goal should not be to just know information and facts and things that are going on. You want to know God. You want to know a person. That's why we open up this book. And if you want to pursue God and know him, you need to start with this book. Psalm 19 goes on to say that, that knowing God, that this word is more precious to us than gold. And one author says that at the end of the day, there is simply no replacement for finding a regular time and place, blocking out distractions, putting your nose in the text, and letting your mind and heart be led and captured and thrilled by God himself, communicating to us in his objective and written words. To pursue God, you have to respond to God. You have to see God and what he's like in his word. If we respond to wisdom that is held out to us in his word and pursue it, and then we can look back at verse 5 and see the verse that says, Then, then, here's what's going to happen. You will understand the fear of the Lord. You will find the knowledge of God. God is saying that those who will genuinely pursue him and pursue wisdom are going to receive it. They're going to find it if they're going after it. Now that pursuit of wisdom, pursuit of God, doesn't earn us God's favor. We haven't then earned God's wisdom. We haven't gotten to a certain level. Now we can receive it because we've made it far enough for him to give it to us. No, remember in, verse, in chapter 1 how willing wisdom was to be found, how she was calling. And so it's not as if we're going after something God doesn't actually want us to have. He wants us to have wisdom. He wants us to pursue. He wants that wisdom to be found. He wants to be known. He is the one who first pursues. He is the one who first reveals. He is the one who first loves. And we're just doing anything that we do in response to those things. But the right response to him loving and pursuing and revealing and going after us is then to pursue wisdom. Pursue relationship with God. To walk in the fear of God. The pursuit doesn't earn anything, but what it does is it reaches decisively for what God has offered out to us freely. Our pursuit doesn't earn anything, but reaches decisively for what God offers freely. Church, are we a people who reach decisively for what God offers out to us? Are we a people who are going after the things that God actually wants us to have, that he has given to us and wants us to go after? It's not a matter of earning something from God. It's a matter of responding correctly to him by pursuing, by seeking, by taking hold of the outrageous grace that he has left out to us, that he offers and holds to us, that we might have it. And if there is a genuine pursuit of wisdom and a pursuit of God, it's going to be found. That's what he says. It will be found. But we're also going to find its benefits. And he kind of goes through a huge list of benefits in chapter 2. So the, the appeal is, this is a good life. You'll you'll know God. You will find wisdom. And here are all wisdom's benefits. And he says in verse 6, he starts going through kind of the list of benefits that you will receive. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. 
He's the source of wisdom. Over and over again in the book of Proverbs, you see wisdom, but you see how tightly it's connected with God. It's as if they're inseparable, and that's what the the author wants us to know, is that you you don't have wisdom apart from God. The beginning is the fear of the Lord, not anything outside of that. That's not true wisdom. They're so tightly connected. They're intertwined. And so to get wisdom is, is to pursue the Lord as well, and there's all sorts of benefits from wisdom. In verse 7, it says that he stores up, he, he gives out sound wisdom for the upright. Another way to translate sound wisdom is resourcefulness, sound sense. Or one commentator said it's an inner power to help one escape a fix, which I think is a good way to describe it. In other words, God is giving us, if we pursue after them, here are the benefits, so here's what he's going to give us. He's going to give us the, the resources, the, the wherewithal to deal with what comes to us in life, with all the changes in the situations that are going to fluctuate and go up and down in life. He is giving to us what we need to handle those in a way that would bring honor to him. He's giving us the wherewithal to handle those in a way that would be walking in the fear of the Lord. This is why sound wisdom in verse 7 is likened to a shield. Because it protects from life's barrage of constantly changing and difficult circumstances, of our own sin that would seek to unravel us, of the brokenness of relationships all around us, of the waxing and waning of the things that are good and bad that go on in this world today. He is giving us what we need to protect us from those things so that we can handle them in the right way. God is our shield. And so the wise, they don't need to avoid the news because they're afraid they're going to be depressed. The wise don't need to not check their emails when they don't want to get down about something. Or or keep their phone turned the other way because they don't know how to deal with what's getting ready to come to them. No, the wise don't have to ride those ups and downs because God's their shield. And he's providing what's needed to deal with whatever comes their way. He does this. Not as one who is distant, but one who is in covenant relationship with his people, his saints, they're called here, watching over them. Verse 8 says, he guards the paths of justice. He's watching over the way of his saints. Saints is an important word because these are the people that God is in covenant relationship with. They are the people that he is bound to with love, with this unbreaking Never stopping, never giving, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, the Jesus Storybook Bible says. That's what he's bound to these people by, these saints by. And so he's close to them. And just as he knows all the names of all the stars, he knows his saints. And he's watching over them. And he knows their frame. Psalm 103, verse 14 says, he, he knows us. He knows our frame. He knows where we're at. He knows who we are. He knows what we're dealing with. He knows our circumstances. Psalm 139 reminds that we can't even flee from where he is not. All life is lived in the presence of God. And saints are not just living in his presence, but it goes a little bit further. They're never out of his mind. Believer, you are, you're never out of the mind of God. It's not even possible for that, to be, for that to happen with God. And so John Newton writes, What a comfort, what an honor is this, that worms, he's speaking of us, have liberty to look up to God. 
And that he, the high and holy one who inhabiteth eternity, is pleased to look down upon us, to maintain our peace, to supply our wants, to guide us with his eye, and to inspire us with wisdom and grace suitable to our occasions. He is watching over the way of his saints. He is this great shepherd who is watching and taking care of his sheep. This is the joyous benefit of wisdom. God is watching out for us. But there's another then. If you look in verse 9, it says, Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. Again, there's this track of wisdom that always tracks along right moral conduct, righteous living, obedience to God. They're always together. That's part of the reason is that's true is because wisdom gives us moral discernment so that we might be able to see that's evil, that's good, I'm going to go in the way of good. The picture here is not that there's uh, some angel on your shoulder telling you which way to go and that's a louder voice than the demon that's on your other shoulder. That's not the picture that's given here. The picture isn't that there's a sign on the road that says like, don't go that way, go this way. Or that God somehow gives us a miraculous sign that we might know which one to pick. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that there's some internal working that God has provided for us that supplies what we need to discern. We know which direction to go because God has somehow supplied it to us. The pursuit of wisdom and growth with God changes our internal workings that we might see things differently. That we might have new desires and new wants to walk in the fear of the Lord. And that keeps us away from paths that will lead to danger and sin and death. God, in a sense, provides a new instinct. I think the best way I can describe it is that it's a bit like Spider-Man. So Peter Parker is in some radioactive lab. They're doing an experiment. And there's a spider that somehow gets part of this radiation. So here's a radioactive spider that's going to death and lands on Peter Parker. And his last thing is just to bite him. And he transfers some sort of radioactive spider powers to him. Like we, we could call that spider wisdom. And then all of a sudden, Peter Parker has all these new instincts, right? So when he's walking home, we have a book that, that kind of describes this. So when he's walking home, all of a sudden, he thinks like, maybe I should just climb this building. And he never thought that before, but somehow he has this new spidey sense. This is an instinct, like, I'm just going to climb this building. And up he goes, starts climbing it. And then he's, like, he's going to go down from the building, and he's going to use the wires to come down. He's not going to come down like a ladder. No, like, he's got spidey sense now, so he's going down the wires, And whether it seems natural or not, what it is to him is that it's pleasant. It's delightful to him. And that's what wisdom is like. Somehow there's there's something different in us. There's a new instinct in us. And and we don't understand it fully, but but we like it. Because that's the way we're meant to live. That's how God created us. And he gives us this new instinct, these new desires. And all of a sudden, we're we're walking in the fear of the Lord and we're delighting in it. It's not a burden to us to, to walk in a way that would be morally right, upright, to bring honor to God, it's, it's a joy, it's a delight, because something internally has changed in us, and although we didn't hear somebody saying, you need to go this way, not this way, we didn't maybe see a sign that says, God would say, don't go here, okay, I get that, I'm not going to go there, no, God has done something internally to us, so we just know, that's off, I'm going over here, and, and there's joy in our step, and in conjunction with knowing these right paths, wisdom delivers us from all sorts of ways of evil. 
There are, there are two ways. There are clearly two paths in the book of Proverbs over and over and over again. So there's not a middle path. I think it's important. There's the way of folly and the way of wisdom. There's the way of evil and the way of good. There's not of, I'm in the middle. There's two ways. And wisdom delivers us from the way of evil. Verse 12, this discretion and understanding will be delivering you from the way of evil. From men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So the evil gang we we heard of in chapter 1, they're back. They're up to no good again. And they don't just partake in evil, they delight in it. They love it. And when we're reading it, it seems silly. It's like, it seems so obvious. They're so obvious that they're, they're doing evil and they're trying to drag other people to do evil. And when reading it on the page, it can seem just so like silly. Like, wait, no one's going to fall for that. Right? We go to church. We're, ne- we're never going to fall for an evil gang. Say, come walk in our dark ways. And we're going to do evil things. Will you join us? But, but notice what these guys are doing. That they're using twisted words to convince. So maybe it's not going to seem so obvious when they're in person. They're, they're twisting words. They're, they're using devious ways. That's what they're like. And one commentator says that bad men use good words to smuggle in bad realities. And some people are fooled. Bad men are using good words to smuggle in bad realities and some people are fooled. Do you think this is far away from us? There was a religious elite. The, the highest learners in religion of the day They were known as the scribes and the Pharisees, and they gave a really religious sales pitch to a man to kill God. They twisted words, and they used some really good words. He's blaspheming against God, calling himself God, so we have to put him to death. And so they they get the sales pitch out to Judas to kill God. This is in churches as well. Perhaps even leaders. Paul writes to the Corinthians, the second book that he writes to them that we have. And there's some pretty heated exchanges that have gone on. In fact, one of the letters we don't have that goes back and forth between the Corinthians and Paul. And one thing that's going on is that there are some super apostles, or so-called super apostles at Corinth, that are trying to undermine not only Paul, but his ministry in the gospel as well. And so he has to defend his ministry because he wants to defend the gospel But here's what he says. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. God's word is really good. But some bad men will use good words to smuggle in bad realities. And some people are fooled. And Paul knows it. And so he says, like, we're really up front. We're not like some peddlers of God's word who are taking something really good and they're twisting it. They're devious. They're twisting words. That's what they're doing. They're tricking people for their own end. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he he continues, he says, We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Why would you need to say that? Right? Why would you need to tell a church that? Because it was necessary. Because many were doing it. And he says, we're going to renounce these things because it's happening around there and we're going to refuse to tamper with God's word. In fact, we want you to search the scriptures to find if these things are true that I'm saying to you. So he says, refuse to happen it because it was happening. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, in the end, you know, like there's going to people, people will have itching ears that will accumulate teachers to suit their passions. 
So there's two things going on here. These kind of teachers that are going to teach what your ears want to hear are actually wanted. There's, there's a need, right? There's a, there's a supply and demand going on here, and, and they're available. They're going to be able to get them. So they're wanted and they're available. So it's going to happen. And if you have itching ears, it's going to seem like, hey, we just found the right fit. Or, hey, my, I feel like my needs are being met. This guy just keeps meeting my needs week after week, or whatever the case may be. Or this just feels right. And what's going on is the ways are devious. Good words are being taken to smuggle in bad realities. And I think what God is saying in, in chapter 2 is that for the wise, their, their spidey sense starts to kick in. And, and they may not be able to, to know exactly, put their finger on it, but something's not right here. Something's off with this, this gang that keeps coming. They're saying something, and, and I don't know if I can say exactly what's going on with this gang, but they're, they're not right. I'm not going to go that direction, and they're delivered. They're not fooled. The same kind of deliverance is needed for another temptation that's sure to come. If you look in verse 16. So you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. This is not lady wisdom. It's a much different lady that we're going to see again in the book of Proverbs. And and there's a lot of differences with the the gang of men that came earlier, but there's some similarities. Again, the uh, point of attack is speech. It's words. There's something serpentine in her words and in these men's words. It reminds us of Eden. Words have great power, power to destroy, power to give life. We see that in Proverbs over and over again. And so we're reminded that we need to guard our mouths, but also protect our ears. So it seems like, okay, if the point of attack is speech, here's the easy solution like earplugs. Done. Gang of men, can't even hear them. Adulterous women, can't hear you. No big deal, right? But God says the solution is different. The solution is not to put in earplugs. The solution is to pursue wisdom. And then he's going to give us what we need to be delivered from these things. Like he's going to do what's necessary to deliver us. So here are the men. They, they speak to justify evil. This adulterous woman is a little bit trickier than that. She uses smooth words, it says. Flattery. She's appealing to the ego. Again, it sounds very serpentine. He won't surely die. Did God really say, man, this is good. Look at how good this fruit looks. Guess what you'll be like. If you eat this food. This is the words of the woman as well. They're very smooth. And make no mistake about this. This is a tried and true tactic. It works. It worked in Eden. It continues to work. And you can bet that this adulterous woman knows what to say to flatter. Knows what to say to appeal. You're my kind of man or woman. No one understands my heart like you do. No one gets me like you. You make me feel alive. If only you were treated the way you deserve. You deserve so much more. than You deserve somebody different or better than that. You could just fill in your scenario. And one pastor says when he does premarital counseling, he counsels the couple to, to write down ways that they would be tempted to have an affair. And the reason he does that, he says, those are the ways that you need to start looking out for one another in those areas. And we think, like, let's never talk about that. Let's avoid it altogether. And like, no, there are areas of temptation that we're susceptible to that we need to avoid. Because there's adulterous women or men out there that are going to use smooth words and flattery. And the satanic powers, they know how to trick us. They, they know what we want. 
They will groom us for years that we might fall because we're going after something that seems like this is actually what I want. And again, I think this person, this adulterous woman, is closer than we think. And so the the translation says uh, that she is a forbidden and adulterous woman. Another way to translate that, and maybe some of your translations have this, is that she's a strange woman, that she is a foreign woman. Now, that's an okay translation, but if we think of strange and foreign, that could maybe perhaps mean that she's a non-Jew, non-Israelite, which matters because outside the law, outside the covenant of God, the protection of God, knowing who God is, all those things could be included, including not knowing the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. But I think she's closer than that. I think that forbidden and adulterous is the right translation and keeps us in a place where she, she is part of the covenant people of God. Like, this is not a non-Israelite, I don't think. You look in verse 17, I think that this helps us. She forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So in other words, this, this is not likely a prostitute on the corner, but a, a woman in the temple making offerings to God. This is not someone that's, that's hanging out at the clubs, but, but is sitting in the pews. That's, that's who this woman is. And so it's, it's probably closer than we think. Her lifestyle may not be so different than many others, but it seems like, oh, I'm just willing to break this covenant here. But everything else seems to be okay. That's, that's what we're talking about. And the smooth words that she gives, the flattery, they, they lure. There's no dark paths here. I'm not asking you to walk in darkness. Come to my home. We're not going to do these evil things. Just come to my home. And she flatters and everything sounds nice. And then we read verse 18. Her house sinks down to death. And her paths to the departed. I think a good way to say that is her house is a house of death. It's the gateway to death. That's what it's saying. And it was easy to get there, but it leads to death. Verse 19 doesn't get any cheerier. None who go down to her, who go to her, come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Sin leads to death. We need to avoid sin because it goes down a pathway of death. And wisdom would deliver us from such an adulterous woman. And from the consequences of being allured by her smooth words down into her house of death. Wisdom, and if you have wisdom, these temptations will still charge at you, right? It's not as if wisdom then makes us immune from temptation. And luring words and smooth talk and trickery that's coming at us. No, wisdom doesn't do any of that. But what wisdom does is it meets those words with this protective shield that would then cast them aside and go a different direction. Why? Because if we have wisdom, then walking in the fear of the Lord means we want to meet temptation with a solid and firm no right from the beginning and go to honor the Lord and flee to Him. So wisdom doesn't give us the strength to go toe-to-toe and just face this adulterous woman head up. Wisdom would give us the wherewithal to run away, to have nothing to do with this. Joseph wasn't showing his weakness when he ran from Potiphar's wife. He was showing his wisdom. The fear of the Lord and wisdom, it it doesn't eliminate temptation in our lives, but it gives us the ability to see, once again, that that spidey sense, something's off. Something's wrong. I better get away from this. There's no voice from heaven, often. There's no sign from God, often. 
But there's something that God has changed in you that, that, that knows this is wrong. I love how Spurgeon put it, that faith's rare wisdom enables us to march on in the dark. I like that, in the dark. We don't, there's not a clear path, but it enables us to march on in the dark with infallible accuracy since she places her hand in that of her great guide. And that guide will always steer us away from sin. Like that guide never takes us down the path of sin and darkness. Never will. And so if the path is going that direction, if there's sin involved, then you can be sure that God isn't guiding in that direction. That's not walking in the fear of the Lord or wisdom at all. And here's how great this guide is. It's the game to show us the way. Like wisdom took on flesh. Because as we're reading through all these things and these temptations and these allurements and this adulterous woman or this gang of people, like all of us, I'm just going to put it out there, we've all failed. You haven't kept away from that adulterous woman. You haven't steered clear of the trickery of the gang. You haven't pursued wisdom as you ought, and neither have I. We've all failed. And so if you're here and you've already blown it with any of those scenarios, and you see how far off you are from what God is calling us to, then you can go back to verse 3 and call out for insight and seek after wisdom like a precious treasure. Start again because wisdom came to us and died for us on our behalf. He did what we could never do, fully walked in wisdom, felt all of the temptation and said no to every single bit of it and died in our place that we might then go back to verse 3 and say, I want wisdom. I need help. Help me to start again in the middle of this. Apart from Jesus, we're said we can do nothing, but in him, in him we can bear much fruit. We can walk away from sin. We can avoid sin and we can live wisely. The final appeal to pursue wisdom moves to the ultimate consequences of the two ways of life. So if in Jesus you've started again because he has died in your place and forgiven you of where you failed and has set you on a new course with new instincts, new desires, a new will, then verse 20 says, so you will walk in the way of the good. And keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inherit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. The, the land is the place of, of God's presence, it's the place of God's promises, it's a place of God's blessing. And that's the place where the wise want to be. Where's God? Where's his blessing? Where are his promises? Let's walk there. I want to be there. That's where the wise want to be. All along the way, though, it seemed in chapter 2 that this is a solo journey, that you're just fighting temptation on your own. You're trying to pursue wisdom on your own. And we find out that that's not fully the case. This is not a solo journey. It never is. If you're going to walk in the fear of the Lord, you also get to walk with the people who are walking in the fear of the Lord. It's not a solo journey. And so here we have a, a group of people. You're going to go to this land and you're going to be with those who remain in it. There's a plurality. To be walking in the fear of the Lord and to pursue him is to be with his people and to dwell with them and among them and to walk in the same way together. The land is full of his people. It's full of them. There's a multitude of people that God has called his own and continues to preserve and protect and the place of God's presence and blessing and promises is not a place for those who want to live however they want. Verse 22 gives us the other end, the other ultimate consequence. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous 
will be rooted out of it. And the final appeal to the son from a father pleads the ultimate consequences. So look at how the, the wicked, those who forsake wisdom, look what happens to them. They're cut off from the land. The treacherous are actually rooted out of it. If they're there in the midst of the assembly, they're, they're actually yanked out and moved. And so again, I think what this should do is push us back to verse 3. If you call out for insight, and if you raise your voice for understanding, if you ask, it will be given to you. Didn't Jesus say this? If you, if you ask, it's going to be given. If you seek, you're going to find. If you knock, that door is going to be open to you. Why? Because you pursued it? Because you deserved it? Or because wisdom took on flesh and dwelt among us? And because he was raised from the grave and sits at the right hand of God and intercedes on our behalf, having know the, knowing the fullness of all of our weaknesses and loves us enough to plead on our behalf. That's why when we seek, we're going to find. If we knock, we're going to be open. It's going to be open to us. And if we ask, it will be given. It's that God that we're meant to pursue. It's his wisdom we're meant to have and to walk in. It's that God that we're meant to respond to. So would you pursue wisdom and relationship with God? Now, one of the wise responses to the offering of the Lord, of his grace, of his life, of his wisdom, is to respond to things that he has already told us to do. And one of the things that he tells the church to do is to remember what he has done by taking a supper together. A sacred family meal where we remember the life and work of Jesus. We remember that, that by our faith we're united to him and to one another. That by taking this meal we're, we're looking back at what he has done on our behalf. We're, we're reminded that because he's done that right now we are joined with him. And that we are also reminded that one day he is going to come back and take us to be in the land with him forever. Praise be to God. So one wise response for you if you're a believer is to pursue what God has told you to pursue and to take this meal in faith. For those who've placed their trust in Christ, come, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and be reminded of what Christ has done on your behalf. Pursue this wise response. If you haven't received Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, we would ask you to not take this meal, but to instead take Christ himself. Call out to him. Genuinely seek him, and we're sure, because the scriptures tell us that he will open the door to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for your wisdom. Oh, how we need it. And I pray that you would help us to walk in wisdom, to pursue wisdom, to pursue you in relationship with you, and to want to know what does it look like to live in awe with you? What does it look like to live in fellowship and communion and intimacy with you? Show us, Lord. Help us along the way. There are temptations that are flying at us all the time. God, would you help us to not be led into them and to avoid them? Would you deliver us from the evil one who would have us, who would kill us and destroy us? God, would you protect us? And would you do it all for the sake of all of your saints being able to say, he's been our shield, he's been the one watching over us. It's due to him that we're safe. God, our desire is that you receive honor and glory in and through us. 
Even in this meal, God, as we come and we take it, may we be reminded that we don't come to the table because we have something to offer, but because we we come in response to what you have freely held out to us. May we be a people who grasp decisively at what you have held out to us freely. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.